I learned this morning that Pastor Robert's dad passed away, and I know that's a significant part of your congregation, and you're feeling the loss this morning. So I just feel led to pray for you and to pray for Pastor Robert and his family. So would you let me pray with you? Our great God, we thank you that you have loved us and that you have given us hope through Christ Jesus that even as we mourn, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. We mourn as those who have the sure hope of a risen Savior, Jesus Christ, one who has himself walked through death and demonstrated that death has lost its power. Christ, who has been raised from the dead, who now sits in the heavenly places at the right hand of the throne of majesty, Christ, who has already won the victory over all of his foes and is just waiting for them to be made a footstool for his feet. This same Christ who promises as our great high priest to make intercession for us always. This Christ who we trust now in the heavenly places is making intercession for Pastor Robert and his family, for this church, for the loss that, that you've suffered. I pray, Father God, in the name of Christ, that you have blessed this people with hope, that you would bless this family with peace as they contemplate the power and goodness of Christ and his resurrection. Would you strengthen and encourage their faith? Because I pray this for them in Jesus' name. Amen. I have been acquainted with the persecuted church as kind of a well, like you, you know, as a believer who doesn't really have a context for understanding persecution and yet being confronted with the reality that brothers and sisters around the world are suffering on account of being called by the name of Jesus. I've been acquainted with this concept and with the persecuted church for well over 20 years now, and I, it first happened to me. That's kind of the way it goes, right? It, it happened to me. I was at a Promise Keepers rally. Any of you guys remember Promise Keepers? Yeah, a long time ago, it was the thing, right? And so I was in Dallas-Fort Worth and went to a Promise Keepers rally and just unassuming and had no intention of getting redirected in, in my life, but one of the guys there handed me a little newsletter, it was from Voice of the Martyrs, and I took it, and I read it, and I was captivated by the concept that Christians are suffering today on account of Christ, because, you know, in my mind, that happened back then, maybe in the first century, second century, third century, or maybe, you know, maybe it happens over there in Muslim context, but no, this was like all over the world, and it was not just one or two instances. It was a lot of instances. And that started my journey, which took me through, eventually, through a Ph.D., which was basically a, a New Testament theology of persecution. And I started just realizing how central persecution is to even understanding the gospel itself. The New Testament was written by persecuted Christians largely, or at least Christians who had an imminent threat of persecution, and two Christians who also had an imminent threat of suffering persecution. So if you look at the New Testament, of all the books in the New Testament, every one of them was written to a people who were persecuted, with the possible exception of, say, Jude and Philemon. Because those are really short, really specific 
addresses, right? But the rest of it, every book talks about New Testament, talks about persecution, and expects people to understand it. So persecution has kind of framed the way that I understand the gospel, and I hope with the Lord's help, I'll, I'll let you see it this morning. But it's a blessing to understand, and also a little bit of a burden, right? I bet you're not excited at the thought of studying persecution this morning. It seems like heavy, right? It seems like a real burden, like this is going to be a downer. But the reality that I've come to to see is that it actually sobers us up, and being sober doesn't mean being somber. It just means being clear-headed. And so it helps us to to appreciate the things that we really ought to appreciate. I'll, I'll just give you one example. So I'm familiar with Christians around the world who are in prison right now because they name the name of Jesus Christ. So you have people like Aisha Noreen, who you may have heard of as Asia Bibi. You have, you probably haven't heard of, Dr. Kiflu Gebremeskel, or some of the others, well, well, they're a bunch, but one you might think of is Pastor Andrew Brunson in Turkey. Now, there are people in prison right now because they named the name of Jesus Christ. And that's heavy to think about. But then one day, as these things were in my head, I was sitting in my office. This was back when I lived in Kentucky, and my daughter just came skipping by, and I was able to see her, and I watched her. She literally skipped happily across the field all the way just to our neighbor's house. And I thought, I have brothers and sisters who haven't seen their wives, their husbands, or their children in five years, because they're unjustly being kept in prison on account of Christ. What should I do with this reality that I'm sitting here in a comfortable office watching my sweet little girl dance across the lawn going to her neighbor's house? I should understand that this is a blessing. It's kind of the anomaly, because throughout the course of history, like most countries, have been places where people get treated unfairly. And a lot of countries today are places where people still get treated unfairly. And the fact that I'm here in a place where where I have the means to be in an office and I have the opportunity to watch my daughter, this is a blessing from God. And it really, it kind of changed me from that point forward so that when I give grace before a meal, like when I thank God before a meal, I really, really, really genuinely thank him because I know that I can't take that moment for granted. I may not have an opportunity tomorrow to have a meal with my family. So, man, I'm going to enjoy it today. So, in other words, just if you've tracked that, what it did, it didn't make me feel guilty and somber It sobered me up so that I could really thoroughly enjoy the blessings that I have for what they are, real blessings. Does that make sense? It's it's different, but that's been my experience with the persecuted church. So I think that there are good reasons that the Scripture expects us 
to be really concerned for the persecuted church, and I'm going to show you that with the Lord's help from Galatians 6.10 this morning. We should be really concerned about the persecuted church. The Bible actually expects and demands that. I'm going to show you that again from Galatians 6.10. And before we're done, hopefully I'll give you some helpful hints on how to be concerned about the persecuted church. Okay, but I I want you to know up front, this is not a somber message. (laughs) This should be an encouraging message to you. It's sober, and sobriety leads to joy. It really can. Well, so this morning, as I said, we're going to look at Galatians 6.10, and I'm going to show you that it demands that you be really concerned for the persecuted church. Galatians 6.10. You might not have thought of it that way, though, if you've heard this verse before. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. When you think of the book of Galatians, you probably don't think of that book as a book on persecution or as a book giving instructions on how to care for the persecuted church or minister to other Christians. Specifically, that book for us has been kind of framed, rightly so, as a book on justification by faith alone, right? So there's, there's a problem in the book and people are trying to add circumcision in or they're, you know, they're trying to add some, some Judaistic rules to the faith and Paul just smacks them, punches them right in the face and says, no way, we're not having any of that. If anyone comes to you and preaches a gospel contrary to that which I've already preached to you, let him be accursed. So he goes right at the heart of the gospel. And we look at this verse and we think, yeah, well, that's what, it, that's what it's all about. It's about justification. It's about faith. It's about belief. It's about the church. Yes, and it's about persecution. And it's about you and me being really concerned for Christ's church, especially concerned for the household of faith we see here. And I think that has something to do with persecution. So first, I'm going to try to prove it to you from Galatians, all right? We're going to use Galatians 6.10 as kind of the little peephole in the door. Maybe you have that in your door. And your peephole lets you look like literally through this solid door. And you look out and you see the whole world, but it's through a tiny little bubble, right? So you, but, but you get to see a lot through a little bubble. 6.10 is our little bubble, and we're going to see the gospel, but specifically how the gospel frames the concept of persecution for us. All right, so I'm going to convince you that Galatians 6.10 does have something to do with persecution, and it is specifically saying that you and I should be especially concerned for the persecuted church. Well, why is the especially here related to persecution? First, because persecution, by its nature, is an aspect of just Christian belief. It's built into the idea of your faith, of your believing, of your receiving the witness of Jesus Christ. And as a receiver of that, becoming a believer. That sets you apart from the rest of the world, right? Now you're a witness of something and you have a testimony about that witness. That changes your category. 
by nature, you're no longer, as Paul says elsewhere, children of wrath, or you're no longer, you know, by in, in Galatians, you're no longer of the flesh, you're now in the spirit. So, so there's a change, there's like a whole category change for us when we become believers. That sets us apart from the rest of the world. And because we're set apart from the rest of the world, we could be targeted by the rest of the world because there's some, there's some friction. You want me to show you that? Flip back to Galatians 5. Paul is really clear that there is probably going to be some friction between the flesh and the spirit. In Galatians 5, starting at verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivals, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, and I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another. So you see there's, a, there's an opposition here. The flesh or the Spirit. You should be characterized as believers either by your spiritual walk, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, or, well, that's really the only choice if you're a Christian, right? And y'all are all sitting perfectly there in the Spirit, right? Like that, you were just reading that off, check, 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 right? Isn't that what you told me, Pastor Robert? Because we don't do these fits of anger things, because that's the flesh, right? Okay, so maybe there's still a little bit of the tension inside of you as you yourselves are, are living fully into the calling of being a Christian and, and walking in the Spirit. But you know that tension. Well, what Paul is saying is that in the broader scheme of things, that little bit of tension you feel inside of you is a real, genuine tension in the world, between those who walk according to the Spirit of God and those who are opposed to the Spirit of God. So by nature, there is a sense in which persecution is part of the whole understanding of what it means to be a Christian. When you walk away from drug addiction or you walk away from um, uh, contentious relationships, you know, when you walk away from relationships that are unhealthy and that aren't God-honoring and you make it a point to, to let people know that you're not any longer going to be in that relationship, there's a, a, a tear. And not everyone is going to like that. The gods, if you want to call them that, the lords over addictions 
don't like it when people get free from them. Right? So there's some tension just built into the idea of being a Christian. Notice how he transitions then. So you're living by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit in 525. And then in 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. If you're in the Spirit, set apart by God, then automatically your focus is going to change. And one of the first changes and one of the most complete changes of the Christian life is love for brothers and sisters in Christ. That doesn't surprise you because you know the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. It starts growing love when you start walking by the Spirit, and specifically love for God and for His people. So the nature of persecution then really argues for us to, to just in the gospel itself, to love one another. The world can't really handle that. They don't understand why you would love each other when you don't have a natural kinship to each other. It's the power of the Spirit. It's different from the world. Well, Paul also, in writing the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul, the whole book was born by him out of persecution. We don't typically think of that because, you know, we read the book on its own, which is, is great, but we have a lot of information from Acts about how this book came about. So the Apostle Paul when he founded the churches in the region of Galatia, was himself persecuted through that experience. He experienced a lot of persecution and wrote Galatians after those experiences. So in Acts chapter um, 13 and Acts chapter 14, you can read all about this, but in Acts chapter 13, Paul is in Antioch of Pisidia. (coughs) Acts 13, verses um, 49 to 51. That's what I want to show you here. So in Acts 13, Antioch of Pisidia, starting at verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Well, they go on through here, and Paul is preaching in Antioch of Pisidia, which is in um, the, the region of Galatia, and then there's some success going down here, but starting at verse 49, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, so there's success, and they're saying, yay, right, this is great, excellent, but verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up 
persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Well, success. People are coming to Christ, which means they're leaving traditional forms of religion that had held them. So there's that separation. There's that anxiety that comes. In um, Iconium, chapter 14, he moves on uh, from Antioch and Pisidia to Iconium. They entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. So celebration, right? But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Persecution. Successful ministry. People coming to Christ. Walking in the Spirit now. Those in the flesh don't like it. Um, in, what about in Lystra? So he moves on from Iconium down to Lystra. What about in Lystra? Man, he had serious success there. You might remember reading in chapter 14, verse 18. He's so successful there that people start offering sacrifices to him, treating him as though he's one of the gods, right? Yay, that's good news. The gospel is flourishing there. But, verse 19, the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, where he had already been, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city (laughs) that they dragged him out of. He entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Well, the point is that when Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians, he wrote it out of the DNA of persecution. He had experienced it among them. He knew that when they went away from their whatever their uh, allegiances were, when they went to Christ, fully to Christ, walking in the Spirit, he knew that would put them at odds with the world, and they might suffer for it. And he didn't want people to forget that. So it makes sense in the letter. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. That you're to do good to all people because you're Christians. You're loved by God, so love others. But especially it's true for the persecuted church. Because they're suffering on account of Christ. Well, Just look again back at Galatians. Chapter 6, verse 10 is the one we're keying in on here. But before that, Paul in chapter 5 had already mentioned that the people he's writing to were suffering persecution. You were running well, he says in chapter 5, verse 7, but who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So they're trying to live the gospel, justification by faith alone, no works of the law, no merit in their own flesh, right? And as they're doing that, people are not liking it, and they're attacking it and attacking it and attacking it. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you 
would emasculate themselves. Really strong language, and I don't need to get graphic. But if they're so hung up on circumcising, Paul says, let them go circumcise themselves. Instead, they're persecuting him, and he's not even technically getting people not to be... Like circumcision, he's trying to say, is not the issue. Believing in Christ is the issue. But if you believe in Christ, it will set you apart from the world. And some will see that as a reason to target you. Therefore, love your brothers and especially pay attention to those who are in need and who are suffering on account of Christ. So in chapter 6, Verse 11, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So that's a little, uh, a little hint that there were some people that maybe wanted to be Christians but the Jews had raised such a fuss, and we, we went through the history of how much fuss they raised, that these people didn't want to fully go with Paul and with the gospel and say, yes, this is the truth. You just have to believe in Jesus. You have to follow Jesus. You have to trust him fully. They were afraid to make that stand because it would cause them to be persecuted. So all through the book, there's this flavor of persecution pretending righteousness they're really just trying to avoid persecution paul in this setting says look do good to everyone but especially to the church suffering persecution all right that's a lot of bible <coughs> i hope that it was uh, enough to follow. i know i went a lot of places and i don't normally do that but i want to give you a a full-orbed understanding of what's coming out of this letter. Because I'm making a bold claim. I'm saying, on the one hand, Galatians 6.10 is really emphasizing care for the church, especially the persecuted church. And I know it doesn't explicitly say that. So I felt like I had to give a lot more background in order to make that plain. But you know what? You don't need all of that so much. Hopefully, you're already convinced by this walk through Galatians that Paul has a real heart for you and me to be especially concerned about the persecuted church. But really, even, even if you're not 100% convinced on this particular verse from what I've shared with you today, you know the gospel well enough, if you're believers, to understand what I'm telling you is exactly what the New Testament is teaching. What do I mean? Well, the New Testament, like the Old Testament, teaches that God loves people. And in his love, he reveals to people the way that they can live. And when he reveals the way for people to live, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And his people say, yes, amen, that's what we want. We want to know the way of life. We want to know how to live now and forever in your presence, our creator and redeemer. They said it in the Old Testament. They say it in the New Testament. So what you get when you understand that kind of covenant love, does that make sense? 
the covenant love of God for his people. So God and his people are like this all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially in the New Testament after Christ. All right. If you have that, then you have an identity, a kind of intimacy that locks God and his people together. That reality screams that you must be really concerned for the persecuted church. Let me give you three pictures that will make it really plain for you. Okay? And these are New Testament pictures. In fact, um, all throughout the book of Galatians, you get God's people referred to as family. Right? Brothers, sisters, our Heavenly Father. All this family language in the New Testament for the church. That is the most common way that the New Testament speaks about the church. Speaks of us as family. All right, fair enough. Let's, let's use that for a second, and we'll get back to Galatians 6.10. Let's think about your family. Now, um, I know that horrible things happen in the world. A horrible thing happened in Santa Fe, Texas this week, right? At least 10, I think, uh, were, were killed. Do you feel bad about that? Does that burden you? Yes, and rightly so. If one of those kids was your kid, would it be much more intense for you than it is for us? Why? Why? Because that's family. It's closer. You're more more directly tied, you're, you're identified by that person. That Now you're directly affected, not secondarily affected. Family matters. So do good for everyone, especially to your family. And when do you especially do good for your family? When someone's hurting in your family. That's Galatians 6.10. Or put it in a different way. Think of family this way. My family and I live in Corona. All right, so you could keep track of it. Don't, I mean, don't, but, well, but you could. Let's say something really, really tragic happened in Corona, and all of a sudden there's not just a drought, but there's like no food. There's not enough food for us all, okay? Um, and so you start looking around and you hear about me in my neighborhood, and you hear about how I'm feeding all the people in my neighborhood, you're like, wow, that's a really godly man. Oh, wow, I got to go, man, I got I to gotta check him out. Hey, he came to our church. I know him. And, I wanna go. and then you come and you see it firsthand. And what you find out is that, yeah, I'm out there in the public and I'm, I'm helping and I'm feeding all these people. Meanwhile, my own wife and my own children are starving to death in my household. Would you think there's something really, really, really wrong with me if I were somehow more concerned about other people and doing things publicly so people can see me feeding other people and meanwhile I'm not even feeding my own children? Wouldn't that be awful? So the order is family beyond. 
I'm, I'm not saying that we have any excuse for not feeding the poor people outside of the church community. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying God and his people line up first. Here's your first priority. And from your people, radiating outwardly to the community at large, to the very ends of the earth. So Jesus doesn't give us an excuse. He tells us to go to the ends of the earth. But we're supposed to be taking care of our own family. What about another vision of the church in the New Testament? The body of Christ? Have you heard that language? Of course you have. Would you be concerned if I fell off of the stage here and broke my leg? You'd feel really bad for me. You'd try to help me up and get me, you know, the help that I need, right? And I know that you would care. But wouldn't you care more if it were your own leg? And you don't have to answer because it'll make you sound selfish and you don't want to be selfish, right? But the reality is you're going to live with that injury if it's your own leg a lot longer and you're going to spend more time tending to it and more time trying to heal it and more time trying to fix it if it's in your own body, correct? Same thing is true with the church pictured as a body. We have an opportunity within our body to help, to strengthen knees that are weak, as the book of Hebrews says. We have to pay attention to that. It's in our own body. It's that closely tied to us. Or another New Testament picture for church, the bride of Christ. I have a daughter getting married in November. I guess, yay. I don't know. It's so tough. (laughs) He's a great guy, though. But so imagine I'm here and well, no, I won't be here because I'll get to walk her down. But um, let's say her groom is uh, her her, the the man she's going to marry is standing here. I'm walking her down the aisle and he sees her in her dress for the first time. And of course, his heart's fluttering and his knees are getting weak and the beauty of it is just overwhelming. He's like he's in a swimming pool looking out because everything's all glassy and blurry, but she's shining like the sun walking down the aisle. Yeah, the bride. Now imagine, as she takes a step, someone over here curses at her and someone over here throws a rock and hits her in the head. And someone here starts throwing mud on her white gown. And others insult her as she walks her way down. What, what does this guy do? If he's good enough to be my son-in-law, he better get really, really enraged. Like really angry about this. And do all in his power to protect his bride and hold off the attackers and accusers. Christ has a bride walking down the aisle of history. And there are people today who are cursing her, who are throwing rocks at her, who are unjustly tackling her and dragging her off to prison and leaving her there. Do you think Christ cares about that? 
I think he's enraged about that. That's us. That's his bride. And something about the intimacy of the relationship of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the family of God, something about the intimacy of that relationship just absolutely demands that we be really concerned for the persecuted church. Love everyone, do good to everyone, but my goodness, be especially concerned with those who are suffering. Not, I mean, we all suffer, but some people suffer specifically because they name the name of Jesus Christ. He's very concerned about that. His, his, his righteousness has to be vindicated. His justice has to be vindicated. His mercy has to be vindicated. His victory has to be vindicated. And there are people who are persecuting his church and they're calling all of that into account. As believers, we have to make plain to the watching world that we belong to God. We are intimately connected to the living God. And therefore, we're integrally connected to one another. It's unavoidable to be especially concerned for the persecuted church. Well, how do you do that? Well, we just keep in touch with our family. We just prove that we're the kind of family who cares for our own people. So we learn about persecution. We learn about it from the New Testament. We learn about it from sources. Um, there, and there are, we're so blessed because there are so many great resources out there. But one of them that I'll just mention to you is prisoneralert.com. Prisoneralert.com. On prisoneralert.com, you can actually see pictures and find out biographical information and read stories of Christians right now who are in prison not just Christians who are in prison, but they're in prison explicitly because of their faith, because they were witnessing to, in one case, this uh, brother was witnessing to a Muslim cab driver. Now he's in prison. In another case, in the case of Asia Bibi, Aisha Noreen, she, in 2009, 2009, can you th remember back? where you were in 2009? I didn't even live in, t in California in 2009. In 2009, she went to work. Some of the women, two of the Muslim women that she worked with, started um, making fun of her on account of her faith in Christ. And she defended Christ, which they took as an insult to Muhammad. And they started making accusations against her. The whole scene just blew up, she ends up being the one arrested. And she then later was kept in prison and went to trial and was sentenced to death. And she has not been executed yet, but she um, has been going through a series of appeals and it's, it's obvious to people who pay attention to it that she is not guilty of anything worthy of death and she's not even guilty um, except in that context, she did share Christ, but she's not guilty of a crime. So people are trying to help her get free, but there's pressure from the other side to see her executed. 
So since 2009, she hasn't seen her husband or her five children. She's been in jail on account of Christ. So pray for Asia Bibi. And the, there are indications that maybe she could get free, but if she did, she would have to be whisked out of the country very quickly or she and her family would likely be killed. She's in Pakistan. Prisoner Alert has her story and some other stories. I mentioned Kiflu Gebramaskal. Here's a man with a Ph.D. in math who was teaching but just could not, he, he couldn't get away from his love for the gospel and the church. So he left everything, went back to Eritrea and became a pastor and was very gifted and so became a leader in the Christian church in Eritrea. And he then was also thrown into prison where he's been for years. Andrew Brunson is an American pastor who's been working in um, Turkey for a number of years and as really a, some think a political move, but he was arrested two years ago and just this past week had a trial, but um, it was delayed again on fallacious terms. So a brother American Christian, uh, Andrew Brunson, you can pray for him. Well, beyond knowing about the, the persecuted church and those in prison for Christ, there are so many different ways that you could learn. Uh, Voice of the Martyrs operates a website, persecution.com, and they have a number of ministries that you can uh, actually support a pastor of a persecuted church for less than $500 a year. Like you could be his primary means of support, $500 a year. You could... Um, Contribute to their Families of Martyrs Fund. You could get Bibles to believers in restricted nations. Open Doors USA is another ministry to the persecuted church, and they do a lot of work as well. Um, they were made famous by Brother Andrew, who smuggles Bibles all over the world. He's a little too old for that now, but um, that's the way he started this ministry. And now, not only do they do Bibles, but they also provide uh, like in Nigeria, Nigeria is a real hot spot for Christians right now. A lot of persecution is going on from a lot of different sources in Nigeria. And they provide immediate aid specifically to Nigeria and specifically to some other places. So you can know exactly what your, your aid is going to do. But certainly, stay informed. Get, you know, get knowledgeable about the persecuted church today and about what the New Testament says about it. That's, again, thank you, Robert. That's, that was why I wrote the book, and I try to put a lot of this in the book to help people understand just how important it is for us as believers to understand persecution because it's an aspect of the gospel. You and I, we really should be concerned for the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the family of God. Father, Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the opportunity to share your word with brothers and sisters. Thank you for the power of your word that overcomes all evil. And even in the face of this, what we would say, these tragic injustices against your people, you don't want your people to lose hope. And so frequently we have testimony of brothers and sisters who do not lose hope, even even in terrible situations of persecution. They don't lose hope, so we shouldn't lose hope. But we should place all of our hope and trust in you, our God, in Christ, a victorious, risen Savior. 
And I pray, Lord, for your people today that you would bless them with faith in Christ and strengthen their faith. I pray that you would give us all a right love, a deeper love for you and for your body, your bride, our family. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.